You're listening to Teach Me Thy Statutes, a production of the Ephesus School Network. Blessed art thou, O Lord, teach me thy statutes. The company of the angels was amazed when they beheld... Hi, this is Father Aaron Warwick with Jason Everett, and you are listening to the Teach Me Thy Statutes podcast, episode number four. Today we will be discussing Luke 11, verses 1 through 10. Now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And he said to them, Which of you shall have a friend, and go to him at midnight, and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me on this journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. So earlier this year, the Roman Catholic Church modified the most common translation of the Lord's Prayer, specifically the verse, lead us not into temptation. The thought is that this verse is confusing to people, and they understand it to mean that God is leading us into temptation. Father, would you help to clarify this verse for us? Uh, Yes, and I think it does uh, require some uh, clarification. It's, It's a complex issue, so... Uh, Let's just begin uh, by stating that Pope Francis uh, said the prayer should be changed to do not let us fall into temptation. Uh, Now, I I certainly understand where the Pope and the Roman Catholics are coming from here, and perhaps it's appropriate to change the English translation of this text. But I'm not a fan of the way that they changed it. And this isn't about being partisan by any means. It's simply about fidelity to the actual biblical text how we should live true to the Bible's words. Now, obviously, there are passages of the Bible that might make us uncomfortable, but that doesn't give us the right to change them. So what exactly is going on in this passage? Is it indicating that God is leading us into temptation? No, I I don't think that's the case at all. And I'll definitely propose a better translation and and better understanding of this passage, uh, one that's solely based on the biblical Greek, And I'll also uh, show you from the Bible how uh, this translation that I'll propose is actually a way. I'm not saying it's the way, but certainly a way to understand it, and one that I believe uh, makes much more sense. Uh, But before that, I want to point out that many people overlook the complex relationship in the Bible between God's role with good and evil. And I think a lot of that has to do with taking the Bible, which was originally a story, a narrative, and a Semitic one at that, and then starting to apply Greek philosophical terms and ideas and reading those back into the Bible. Interesting. 
So can you explain that a little bit? I'm not sure that I, I really fully understand what you mean. Uh, sure. Uh, what I'm getting at here is, is that we have these philosophical concepts of good and evil. It's sort of uh, black and white. And we see this great divide between good and evil. And we assign everything good to God and everything that's evil to Satan. Uh, but in the biblical narrative, you don't really have these philosophical concepts. You have God who is in control of everything. And it's more of a complex and, and sometimes even, I would say, uneasy relationship. You know, you have the same problem today. Think, think about a tragic event like 9-11. Uh, people ask, how can God allow these types of things to happen? And the Bible, at, at least in my opinion, as I, as I read it, never really gives a satisfactory philosophical answer to that. And I personally, I don't see that as a deficiency. Actually, I think it's beautiful, uh, not to mention wise. Uh, instead, the Bible is essentially saying to us, you're asking the wrong questions. Uh, the question is not, how can God allow this? But given that this happened, what can I do now? What can I learn from this? I like to tell people we should not keep asking why this, why that, but rather, uh, what can I do now? You know, we can't answer the question of, of why. We can answer the question of what. Uh, do I need to know? Can I ever know why God allowed something like uh, the tragic event of 9-11 to happen? Uh, I, I don't think so. It's totally impractical and useless question, really. It's non-functional. It doesn't change anything about the way that I behave. And ultimately, the Bible's concerned with how we behave. So when I ask the question, what should I do about 9-11, now I can do something. I can behave differently. Of course, there's lots of answers to that. I could say, well, I need to take care of, of my needy neighbor, so I might uh, go volunteer or donate uh, to causes that would help victims of 9-11. I can say, you know what, I need to quit t uh, taking my family and my friends and my neighbors for granted. And actually, you know, ha uh, Having lived in New York for a couple of years, it was, it was after 9-11 and things had got back to normal. But you hear these stories uh, about how people in New York would stop and, and talk to each other on the streets and they would greet each other in the days and, and months after 9-11. Of course, uh, they went back to taking each other for granted and, and eventually, like by the time I was there, you know, it was still, uh, at least uh, on the surface, unfriendly. Uh, I can say, you know what, maybe I shouldn't support our country's imperialistic aims and our meddling in other people's business, and so we can make some positive changes there. It's an, it's an entirely functional question when we ask, you know, what can I do? Uh, so, you know, these, uh, these types of events, they impact what we can do and how we should live our lives, but they, we can't always give the answer uh, to why they happen. What we do know is that we should show more love. That's definitely an interesting way to view things. But can you provide any biblical examples of what you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, the most famous example uh, is probably the story of Job. In Job, you have Satan, or really what the text calls uh, the adversary, as being sent from God. It's presented in the story as, as though this Satan, this adversary character, does God's work. Uh, he's like the district attorney, essentially, trying to press the case against Job. And it's very clear from the text that, that Satan, the adversary, is doing God's work. What exactly does that text say? Well, in, in the first chapter of Job, I'll read from verses 6 through 12. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. 
Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And of course, we know the rest of the story is about Satan then uh, putting Job through all sorts of trials and temptations. So then are you saying, and is the Bible saying, that God does or can lead us into temptation? No, no, that, that's not what I'm, I'm saying and not what the Bible's saying. Uh, I'm just trying to make the point that we need to step back and understand this is a complex relationship, this relationship of, of good and evil, this existence of good and evil. Uh, furthermore, we need to understand that God is in control of everything. So I'm not arguing, uh, of course, that God is the author of evil or that God directly tempts us. But again, as I mentioned earlier, trying to help reprogram the way that we think of things so that we would think as the Bible teaches us to think as, and not as certain philosophies might teach us. Uh, specifically, that we would trust in God, that he is ultimately in control, uh, to not worry about you know, why, why, why these things are happening, but to focus on the what. What can we do about it? What should I do? How then should I live? Okay, so getting back to the Lord's Prayer, and specifically the phrase, lead us not into temptation. How should we understand this? Well, as I alluded to earlier, uh, I, I also don't like uh, this translation that's so common in English, uh, especially when you consider it in light of the rest of Scripture. So let me start with that. Uh, if you look at, at James 1.13, it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Now, it's important to understand that in the Greek, uh, the word being used in this uh, passage, perazo, is the exact same root word used in the Lord's Prayer. So James is telling us, in essence, that God does not, quote, lead us into temptation. Now this word perazo is a rich word because it can mean to tempt or it can mean to test or put to trial. The context is what helps to translate uh, the term correctly into English. And as I mentioned before, I, I want to show this from the New Testament itself, from Scripture itself, and even from English translations of the New Testament. I'll, I'll give a couple of examples. And these are all coming from the NASB translation. Uh, in Galatians 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 14, And that which was a trial, again that perazo, and that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Another example, First Peter 4.12. Uh, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Again, the same word that gets translated uh, often as uh, tempted. And then a, a great example, actually, this is a, a wonderful uh, a translation the NSAB has on this passage, James 1, chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, because what you're going to see here is in, in uh, verse 12, uh, based upon the context, 
uh, it's going to be translated, the same word is going to be translated as uh, trial, but then in verse 13, it's going to be tempt. So again, that passage, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord had promised to those who love him. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So what's going on there in that passage from James then? You said verses 12 through 13. In verse 12, you said it's translated as trial, but in verse 13, as tempted? Yes, correct. Uh, As I said earlier, context determines the translation or the meaning. Uh, So this NASB translation is very good because clearly uh, from the entire context of Scripture, and as we discussed uh, specifically in the book of Job, God may test us in a trial, but he does not, technically speaking, tempt us. Uh, Another example would be in the Garden of Eden. God allows us to be tried, but it was the serpent who actually tempted So what is the best way to translate or to understand the phrase in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation? Well, before I answer that directly, let me very quickly explain the term lead into that is used here because that's relevant also. Uh, The root Greek word is isphero, which means lead into, bring in or announce. Most of the time this term is used in the New Testament, it's translated as bring in or brought, uh, depending on the tense, of course. I don't want to go into every example in detail, uh, but if those listening want to reference it, they can look up uh, Luke 5.18 and 19, Luke 12.11, Acts 17.20, 1 Timothy 6.7, and Hebrews 13.11 to see this. So when, when you put all this together, uh, what we've mentioned here earlier, an alternative translation at the ending of the Lord's Prayer, and one that certainly makes more sense to me, would be, and do not bring in the trial. Or you might say, and do not announce the trial. In other words, we're praying, please do not institute or announce the great and final judgment yet because I'm not prepared. Uh, it's yet another way of us expressing our unworthiness before God. We are telling him or asking him in the Lord's Prayer that that we have not even begun to repent, so please delay your coming to give us more time to change our lives. You know, in the Orthodox tradition, uh, you see this reflected in the hymn that we sing for someone's birthday, God grant you many years. And we sing this not because we want people to live forever on this earth, but because we're praying for God to give us and them more time to repent. Uh, which doesn't mean, of course, to just say that we're sorry, but to actually change our lives and to live as he's commanded us to live. So we're recognizing we have not yet done that, and we may thus be convicted uh, at the final judgment. That's, that's very, very helpful. That makes a lot more sense then. So you're saying the passage is actually asking God not to put us to the test at the final trial, the final judgment, since we are not yet ready. Yes, correct. I I think that's the best understanding of it. Thank you, Father. Let me move to my final question for today. At the end of the parable in this passage, Christ instructs us to ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it will be opened. So in some Christian circles, there is a growing popularity of what is sometimes referred to as the prosperity gospel. 
one that twists the teachings of Christ into one that just reduces him to our cosmic wishing well or our own personal genie. And that if we only have enough faith and pray fervently that God will provide us with everything we ask, including health and great wealth, and that if we do not receive from God what we ask, then we are told that we are lacking in our faith. So, Father, what is it that Christ is actually teaching us here? Look, as it relates to the so-called prosperity gospel, all you really need to do is, is look at the life of Jesus Christ. All Christians confess that Jesus was the only perfect servant, uh, so you can't possibly do God's will more or better uh, than Jesus Christ. And, and just look at how Christ's life on this earth played out. He died a vicious and humiliating death. Even before that, he mentioned uh, how birds have nests and foxes have dens, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So in other words, he, he was an essentially homeless, itinerant preacher. So the idea that if we follow God's will on earth means we'll prosper here and now is, is obviously ludicrous. Of course, there are people prospering from the prosperity gospel, but they're prospering by selling a lie and conning people into sending them money. As always, uh, it's absolutely essential to consider the context of scriptural passages. Uh, we can't just rip passages out of their context and expect for them to be properly understood. Uh, in this case, we've just discussed the context. It's the Lord's Prayer. And so the end of this passage where Jesus implies we will get what we ask for is very narrowly, and I mean very narrowly, within the context of us trying to live like Jesus by submitting to God's will. And because we know there will be trials and tribulations that we face in trying to live like Jesus, the shame and the ridicule of standing up for the oppressed, the weak, the poor, the needy, and the outcasts, uh, then we're asking for God to give us all the tools that we need to overcome these trials. That is to say, we are not asking for selfish things or things that would enrich us, materially speaking. We're asking for God to give us Jesus' strength. We aren't asking for a new Mercedes or a private jet or any of these types of worldly things. Thank you, Father. In today's episode, we discuss the Lord's Prayer, specifically the passage, Lead Us Not Into Temptation. Father Aaron clarified this passage is not stating that God leads us into temptation. Instead, through a better understanding of the Greek, we are, in fact, praying that God will give us more time to repent, to delay his final judgment, because we are not yet ready. He also provided a better question for us as Christians to ask in time of trouble, to ask not, why this or why that, but rather, what now? Knowing why is not useful. Discerning what now is of far more importance. Finally, in response to the lie that is the prosperity gospel, we were reminded that Christ's teaching here is to pray for the strength and the tools that we need to overcome the trials of this life. As Christians, we should strive to live like Jesus by submitting to the will of God. Thank you for listening to Teach Me Thy Statutes. We hope you tune in next week for a new episode. Alleluia, glory to thee, O God. Alleluia, 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 glory to thee, O God.